Richard Seymour, thanks so much for joining us. It's, to say the least, a tumultuous time in British politics with the apparent rise of a coalition of far-right forces on the streets of London, the looming departure of Britain from the European Union and the rolling catastrophe that is the May government. But we wanted to get you on the show with a view to focusing on the trials and tribulations of Jeremy Corbyn, arguably the most principled left-wing leader in the history of the British Labor Party. There have been many efforts to bring down his leadership, including from within his own party. He's shown great tenacity in his willingness to fight those attacks, but in recent months, some of the mud seems to have stuck. Corbyn and many of his supporters within the Labor Party stand accused of anti-Semitism. It's a long story, but give us a brief version of how this has played out. Well, since uh, Corbyn took the leadership, there have been various attempts to uh, go through uh, the Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts, and so on, of Corbyn, Corbyn supporters, members of the Labour Party who might plausibly support Corbyn, and see if they can find things that have been said that would be embarrassing. And um, uh, one wing of this has involved accusations of anti-Semitism. So it's, um, uh, for some people, it's the journalistic equivalent of bin hoking, um, you know, or lurking outside a celebrity's door. Um, but uh, it began, the, the anti-Semitism accusations began with claims that the Oxford Union Labour Club, uh, or pardon me, the Oxford University Labour Club, um, had engaged in anti-Semitic behaviour, and quite serious anti-Semitic behaviour. There was an investigation, an inquiry. Um, the only uh, testable substantive accusation was found not to be true, um, and there was no verification for the wider claims made, um, but uh, the uh, 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 this was the report by Baroness Jan Royal, uh, found that there had been probably some times when uh, racist things were said by some individuals, but it was not found to be systemic, um, uh, and it was not found to be widespread. Uh, it, the report also referred to a toxic atmosphere at times. And you can imagine that that might be true in situations where some people are very pro-Israel, other people are very anti-Israel, and there are toxic arguments uh, developing around that. That's not in itself evidence of racism. Okay, so that was the starting point. But then, of course, there were a number of people, because if you go around any uh, sort of organized group of people, especially a very large group of people, you're going to find one or two uh, who are racist, you'll find one or two who have got criminal past, you'll find one or two who have done this, that, or the other. Basically, they found a number of people who are not just anti-Semites, um, but uh, some of them um, quite uh, strange anti-Semites, you know, conspiracy theorists and what have you. Um, uh, we found uh, the uh, desiccated uh, old Trotskyist actors, Jerry Dachning, who um, had uh, uh, sort of justified support for ISIS and uh, uh, talked about the Jewish question. Um, they found a number of people like that, and they held these people up as exemplars of where the party was going under Jeremy Corbyn, except, of course, that many of these people had committed their offences before Jeremy Corbyn became leader, and they were hardly representative of the Labour Party. They represented a, a, a decimal point membership. In last year's general election, Corbyn's Labor Party came within a hair's breadth of winning government, with Theresa May's Tories only saved by a sordid coalition deal with the Democratic Unionist Party. Corbyn gained 30 seats for Labor on a swing of 9.6%, the biggest increase in Labor's share of the national vote since Clement Attlee's victory in 1945. 
and yet absurdly, almost as a kind of elaborate surrealist work of art, much of the British press still writes off Jeremy Corbyn as unelectable. Obviously, the anti-Semitism canard is one example of a much wider campaign, a very vicious and strikingly irrational campaign of attacks on Corbyn by virtually the whole of the British establishment. What accounts for this extraordinary sustained campaign on his leadership? Well, uh, there are a few lines that have been rolled out. Um, most recently, the argument has come from the hard centre, um, clapped out old figures like Alistair Campbell, a number of uh, sort of centre-right journalists and so on, who basically said that uh, Labour, of course, is doing very well in the polls because, because the government is terrible. It's the worst government in living memory. Labour should be straight ahead. It should be 20 points ahead. And if it was Tony Blair, they would be 20 points ahead. And, of course, in saying this, they're forgetting that they didn't think that this was the worst government in history, the worst prime minister in history, until Jeremy Corbyn's Labour trashed the um, uh, government's majority until the government was forced into a coalition with um, the Democratic Unionist Party, which um, is a really odd right-wing uh, theological sect, um, and essentially entered into a sustained crisis, um, a crisis that keeps being punctuated by um, uh, new disclosures about Brexit. And essentially um, the argument that uh, the centre would be doing a lot better at this point isn't sustainable because the centre would never have inflicted the kind of damage on government that Corbyn's Labour did. They would not have been able to mobilise the numbers of voters um, because they were not interested in mobilising most of these new voters um, that Corbyn's Labour did. They would have focused on a, on a small number of swing voters. They would uh, have lost core voters. They would have done exactly what they did. They would have done in Wales and England exactly what they did in Scotland in 2015. So... Um, uh, you know, obviously, this is an attempt by um, a fairly unimaginative, embattled, um, losing centre ground, um, what you might call the establishment centre, um, the centre ground of the Tories, the Labour Party, Liberal Democrats, and uh, of course the media, to retain the power or regain the power that they once had. Um, but it's not going to happen. Given we have a banal, greyer-than-grey leader of our Labor Party in the form of Bill Shorten, who shows every sign of a full commitment to managing Australian capitalism in the best interests of capitalists, essentially, we here on the left are fascinated and excited by some of what is unfolding in Britain. Corbyn quoting Percy Bysshe Shelley's line, Ye are many, they are few, at the Glastonbury Music Festival in front of thousands of young people is, is but one example. Seeing something like that from afar from a Labor leader is almost incomprehensible to an Australian audience. Is it as exciting as we think it is the current situation, or are we perhaps uh, viewing things through rose-coloured glasses? No, uh, it really is. Um, and, I mean, had you asked me that question a couple of years ago, I might have said, oh, you know, hold on to um, some degree of uh, scepticism here because we don't know how this is going to pan out. The Labour left is very weak. The trade union movement is still very weak. Um, but the truth is that um, the, uh, every attempt made by the traditional uh, management of the Labour Party, uh, which is a sort of de desiccated professional kidder, um, every attempt they've made to regain their power uh, to dis depose the Corbyn leadership has acted as a, a learning moment uh, for the majority of the membership. And what we've seen over the last two, two years 
has been a number of things. First of all, the left has won control of the party. Now, that's not as straightforward as it may appear um, because there are softer and harder wings of Corbyn support and so softer Corbynites might not support him on uh, uh, some of the key things that he supports, such as democracy, democratization of the party. Um, but nonetheless, they've got control of the leadership office when they didn't have it before. They've got control of the national office when they didn't have it before. They've got control of the National Executive Committee. It's a bit tentative, but they got it. They've got control of the Conference Arrangements Committee on a yearly basis. So it's uh, whatever goes on the agenda is shaped by what the Corbynite left wants on the agenda. Um, and now, uh, as, we, as we saw at this year's conference, the debate is between two factions of Corbynism. So, for example, uh, on the issue of whether members of parliament should be reselected automatically by their constituency members, should they be subjected to a mandatory reselection vote, uh, or should they just be waived through? Uh, members overwhelmingly, over 90% of the constituency members voted for open selections, meaning that um, anybody could stand against a sitting MP. There could uh, be a contest without any bar whatsoever. The trade unions tended to resist this, and I suspect it's because uh, trade unions don't want the activists left to be too empowered. They want the balance of power within the Labour Party to be somewhere to the right of Corbyn, uh, even if pretty far to the left of where it was previously. Most members wanted open selection. So there was a clear polarisation there between the union affiliates and the constituency activists. And that um, is going to have to be addressed because it's not healthy to have that uh, you know, a, a sort of division and polarization. But to be honest, the trade union leadership have to do the explaining here because the members have every right to want to um, be able to recall their MPs if the MPs uh, are behaving as appallingly as they have behaved over the last few years. I mean, a number of them have been shockingly disloyal, treacherous, um, uh, and constantly seeking to undermine their own party. Um, it's astonishing that anybody would want to keep in place a, a system a situation that would actually stop them from being challenged uh, when they've done something wrong. But more importantly, um, it's a good idea to allow talent to come up from anywhere within the party rather than creating an entrenched celebrity cast of members of parliament who are barely touchable. And, you know, they've always used the justification that we don't have to be answerable to the members because we're answerable to the voters. And the members are far too radical. They're well to the left of the voters. The reality is they spent years not listening to the voters, and that's how Labour got in the situation that it was in before Corbyn took over. So what we're seeing here now is a series of strategic arguments that are internal to Corbynism. It's about how we reform the Labour Party in order to reform the society. There's now an argument about for example, what the Labour Party's priorities should be in terms of organising the working class. Um, Momentum has dedicated itself to making social media videos, campaigning online, knocking doors during election campaigns and so on. And it does that very well. But there's an argument now that Labour should be involved in organising people, getting them involved in unions, getting them involved in housing campaigns and so on. 
So Corbyn's strategic focus on building Labour as a social movement or as part of a social movement is very much to the fore here. Whether or not that can bear fruit remains to be seen. As I said, the trade union movement in this country remains very historically very weak. And the Labour Party, though vast now, 550,000 members or more, most of the members continue to be passive. Uh, they don't turn out for branch meetings. They don't turn out for votes. Last vote for the National Executive Committee got about a third of the uh, members actually voting. The previous vote got about a fifth. So um, it's a membership that uh, most of them will turn out to defend the Corbyn leadership. But that reflects, I'm afraid, the fact that they have internalized that traditional norm of liberal democracy, which is that you let other people do it for you. You can be passive because you just vote for somebody else to take care of things, and it's not going to work like that. For the left, it never has. We need people to be active. So that's uh, the situation that we're in. But I'm, I have to say, uh, far more optimistic than I have been for years. Corbynism, the Corbyn phenomenon, call it what you will, is a key component of what is, as I said at the beginning, an extraordinarily tumultuous time in British society. Our guests often say they don't like to look through a crystal ball, which is perfectly understandable, especially in today's volatile world. But nevertheless, I'm going to ask you, Richard, where is this all going? Could Jeremy Corbyn, despite all the calumnies from the press and so on, despite all the mud thrown at him, conceivably become the Prime Minister of Britain, perhaps in an early election? And once in office, what social reforms could a Corbyn government realistically implement? Yeah, that's a problem. Um, uh, winning uh, could be the beginning of its worst uh, difficulties. Um, I think he certainly can win. Uh, I think had the last election gone on another week, uh, Labour would have won. I mean, that's very clear. The, the momentum was such that the tide was clearly turning and Labour was winning uh, seats in places that you wouldn't expect it to win unless it was winning the election. Um, you know, Canterbury, for God's sake. Um, so I think that um, there's every chance of Labour winning an election. But what it can do really depends on a range of circumstances. Um, in principle, its agenda is costed, um, compatible with capitalism. Um, it, you know, the uh, use of things like uh, public promotional banking um, to uh, invest in the economy, invest in infrastructure, to build new rail links, and so on. This is all, uh, you know, fairly mainstream in Europe. There will be an argument in the case of a weakened economy for Corbyn to roll back his uh, spending pledges, which are already uh, very tightly limited and costed. So, I mean, I think that there is a potential for a Corbyn government to end up disappointing its base, demoralizing people. The The one cause of optimism I have here is that the agenda... Uh, is not just uh, deliverable within the terms of uh, 21st century British capitalism. In other words, it's it's not the sort of agenda that demands fundamental root and branch reform. It's a humanizing agenda. But it's also, it's one that uh, could, in principle, secure a kind of long-term hegemony for the left. It might be uh, one that would win time and space for the left to develop its organization and for unions to win support. 
Um, there are a number of policies being proposed by Corbyn and McDonnell, such as uh, rolling back anti-union laws. These sorts of things would not necessarily redistribute wealth, but they would make it much more easy for activists to organize. And that's another thing. I mean, McDonnell has a big section, which is to be inside and against the state. Um, and that's a traditional idea on the left. But to be inside and against the state means essentially to reform it so that power is not centralized in the hands of a small number of technocrats, but rather is democratized. And that would mean reversing the transformations that have been imposed on the capital state in the neoliberal era. Uh, and, you know, Corbyn and McDonald are very sophisticated in terms of their understanding of state power um, uh, and in terms of their uh, sort of grounding in uh, the practicalities of policy as well. Uh, and they're also far more historically conscious than most leaders of the Labour Party have been. So I'm, I'm optimistic on those grounds. Much depends on whether the grassroots, which is big, gets organised. Because if 550,000 people got organised, if they were uh, to get, start getting people involved in trade unions, if they were to start getting people uh, involved in grassroots campaigns, it would be a, a massive sea change in the culture and politics of this country.